Well, yes, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. If you have a set of notes, just a reminder, previous notes are available in the back. I think Gail charges five bucks a piece, uh, but uh, Tom will give it to you for free. So, uh, no, just razzing them. And uh, online, electronically, you can retrieve the notes, and they are searchable, which that includes all the previous notes, which is really a nice feature. So that is available to you. And usually the notes for today are posted the night before because your teacher's still working on them. <laughs> so they are hot off the press. There you are. Uh, <clears throat> yes. Well, first, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, we kind of set the stage. Peter's identified kind of his apostolic authority, the message that he's been delivering. It's the prophetic word. It's not concocted fables. And we get to chapter 2, and now he's pulled out the paddle. This is really why he's writing. <clears throat> he is very, very concerned. On he, you remember, he's, he's staring death in the face. Martyrdom is imminent. Uh, he, he's concerned about the church at large and, and what is starting to take place as false teachers are creeping in. We're about uh, 30 years since Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And we're now about a generation down the road and things are <clears throat> a little bit unraveling, so to speak. And so in <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he's going to deal with the false teachers, and he's going to remind them that judgment is imminent. And one uh, commentator said, this is the most depressing passage in the New Testament. So how's that for a cheery morning for you? Uh, good morning. In one sense, that's true. In another sense, there's a beautiful undertow, and that is that God sustains the righteous. I want you to see that as we go along, even in the midst of this, because it is a bit depressing. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but false prophets arose among the people. He just dealt with the prophetic word, which is sure, the true prophets. Now he deals with the false prophets. This is not a foreign concept in the scriptures. <laughs> All the way back to Deuteronomy <clears throat> And we had warnings from Moses about false teachers and how you deal with them. And I've given you a whole host of texts, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah. Uh, it's just peppered. And then you get to the New Testament. Even Jesus warns about false teachers. There will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate your midst with destructive heresies. I was uh, reading a young... <laughs> Was it young, lies, young women's believe, or something like that? With my daughter, <laughs> let me refer. Let me conclude with that last clause. And uh, <clears throat> it was going back to Satan's uh, little interaction with Eve. And the text was saying, uh, Nancy Damas was saying that there's a little bit of, of always truth with Satan and, and a whole lot of deceit. But that's true, isn't it? With false teachers, uh, Satan's tack all the way back to Genesis chapter three is. Uh, there's an element of truth, but then there's something that's underlying it. So uh, They're not going to be blatant. They're infiltrating. And it says, even to the point of denying the master who bought them, which is always a term used in soteriological references, as a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves and many will follow. It's the same term used when Jesus says, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. They're not following Christ, they're following the, the diabolic teaching, and they're debauched lifestyles. Because of these false teachers, the way of truth, Acts 18, that's the gospel, the gospel will be slandered, and in their greed, 
they will exploit with deceptive words. It's what a contrast with what uh, Peter has stated. We don't speak with concocted fables. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idly by. Their destruction is not asleep. Or really the term means becoming drowsy. <laughs> like my freshman that I used to teach, right? Uh, their destruction is not sleep. They're not, they're, they're not becoming drowsy. Uh, this this destruction. It is going to transpire. It is imminent. And that's what Peter's highlighting here. Well, in your notes, as you see, in a review from what we've looked at early on in our journey, there's a characteristics of the false teachers, which sounds a whole lot like what I think the church at large is facing today. First of all, they're skeptical of prophecy. And in our Postmodern world, this fits so well, doesn't it? To be dogmatic is to be a fundamentalist. Uh, and, and that was true here. Uh, and we're going to see that uh, the issue that the false teachers are addressing in Peter's day was the denial that Christ would return. You really can't think that all this eschatology stuff is important. <clears throat> and that's the mantra that they're uh, highlighting. They applaud freedom to a truth set that's determined by each person. Uh, again, it sounds a whole lot like where we are today, right? An egoistic model. They are the determinant of truth. There is no such thing as a <clears throat> canon or a doctrinal statement. <clears throat> they endorse a lifestyle that fulfills personal desires. And that's the debauched lifestyle that uh, Peter's addressing with these false teachers. Shriner states in his commentary concerning these false teachers and whether or not they are believers because it says they deny the master who bought them. Is that saying they have lost their salvation? I think Shriner is correct because they made a profession of faith and gave every appearance initially of being genuine believers, but their denial of Jesus reveals they did not truly belong to God. Uh, I think it's Hebrews 3.6, right? The idea is not what is what will be true, but what is already true. Uh, if they hold fast to the faith, that demonstrates there's genuine faith. If they don't, there's not. <clears throat> and uh, I think that's the situation here with the false teachers. They've played the game. They look really good, right? They've been appointed to the elder board. <laughs> They've been put on the task team. Maybe, maybe even made onto the pastoral staff. But they are leaders in the church that really are not part of the people of God, which is just amazing uh, in light of this. And so on page two, we see the implications then uh, that I highlight concerning their rhetoric. They are leading people into a lifestyle that's un ungodly, but they're also tarnishing the gospel. Think about that for a minute. I was sitting up last night, just ref reflecting on that, impl the implications of that. I mean, think about it. the gospel is what? According to Mark 1, 1, the gospel is Christ. It's about Christ. It's of Christ. And that's what they're denying. 
This isn't a, a game of, well, you know, they might be pre-trib or post-tribulational view or they're post-millennial or all-millennial. No, no, no. They're attacking the very fundamentals of the faith. They're going after Christ. And this is why um, Peter is going to spare no words. He's going to equate them, as we're soon going to see, with those of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, <laughs> and, and we know what Paul did, right? He said, send him over to Satan. Be done. Um, they're undermining the very message of Christ. And, and you think about that. The gospel is the only means for humanity to have a restored, intimate relationship with God Almighty. So they've, they've also blocked the only means to Christ. <clears throat> so the idea that they have, as it says, they have taken the way of truth and they've slandered it is a very serious accusation, isn't it? And so we see in verse 3 <clears throat> that their greed is their demise. And literally, it says here that they will exploit you with deceptive. These are fabricated words. Remember early on in verse 16 of chapter 1? Look at 116. <clears throat> Peter says, we did not follow cleverly concocted fables. And you can almost hear him say, unlike the false teachers, right? Unlike that group who's accusing Peter of using concocted fables. He's saying, no, no, no. They're the ones that have made up these words. And it's based out of greed. There is a great book. If you want to study um, a biblical theology of possessions or of wealth, and I've cited it here in your notes, it's David uh, Baker's work on wealth and poverty in the Old Testament. It's, it's superb. He makes this statement about greed. He says that the commonest motivation for breaking almost any of the commandments is greed or self-interest. Isn't that interesting? Several of you are involved in finance. You've undoubtedly seen this. Whereas the nature of the covenant community requires that members focus their attention not on self-fulfillment, but on the worship of God and service of neighbor. You want to do a litmus test with a pastor or some evangelist you're listening to, who are they focused on? <laughs> right? Where are they putting their attention? For Peter, the underlying issue is greed. These false teachers are concerned about themselves. They are not concerned about the Lord and certainly not about others at the end of the day. How do you yeah. draw the line between greed and ego? How do you draw the line, Rock says, between greed and ego? Parallel lines. Yeah. One the same. Pride and greed seem certainly are wonderful bedfellows, aren't they? Yes, they'd be sending Valentine cards to one another. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> one drives the other, really. Yeah, I mean, it's the two wheels on a bicycle uh, in one way. Um, yeah, gr greed is driven by pride, and pride drives greed. Uh, yeah, and the issue here is that's what's driving these fellows, right? In verse 3, their greed will exploit. End of the story. And, and Peter makes it very clear, though they may deny there's a future judgment or an eschaton, last things, Peter says, <laughs> they have no idea. They're falling right into their own pit. That's where they're headed. And it, it is sure. And this is where he gets to verses 4 through 10. But before we launch there, are there any questions on these first 
three verses because this is kind of his um, major thrust of the entire epistle. And we'll see this with Jude as well. Yeah, Dan. I think it's Brian Rosner who wrote a book on greed that's a New Testament scholar. Uh, there's, there's been much written on this subject, but you're right, for the Jews, uh, Jewish tradition taught that this was kind of the thrust of all of the other uh, problems within the, or the, the underlying commandment. You, you miss this one or, or the rest spring from this kind of an idea. From greed, you have immorality, you have disobedience of parents and so forth. But certainly it's what's underlying these false teachers. Any questions, though, on this? Let's jump into verse 4. This is where it gets a little interesting, all right? <clears throat> he now is going to... Actually, 4 through 10 is one sentence in the Greek. <laughs> you give this to a first-year Greek student, they will short-circuit if you ask him to diagram it, all right? It's, a, it's an if-then clause, but he's going to give us three ifs. Uh, before he gives the then. And each time it's if God, blah, 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 uh, not to uh, imitate one of our congresswomen, um, uh, if he does this, then God does this. And he will then give two examples of how God protects the righteous, three ways God will punish the unrighteous. So watch what he does. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell... That's not a good English translation. Tartus is the, the word used here. It locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. We'll come back to this. If he did not spare, that is if God did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world. And if he, God, turned to ashes, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Old Testament never mentions their turn to ashes, but you can kind of get the idea there, right? When he condemned them to destruction, the Greek term there is catastrophe, <laughs> having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man in anguish over the debauched lifestyle, that is the same phrase used of the false teachers. If you don't think he's not making a connection here, you're missing it, right? <laughs> he says, of lawless men, for while he lived among them, day after day the righteous man, Lot, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If so, all right, so there's the, now he comes to the apostles. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment at the day of judgment, especially those who indulge their fleshly desires and who despise authority. Uh, he's making it very clear that these false teachers who've denied judgment are wrong and they are going to fall to the same trap as those who've gone before us. 
And this judgment is sure. So let's unpack this. The first of these that he highlights is the judgment of the angels. Uh, My colleague who I do tours with to Israel, he handles the Old Testament, I handle the New. We don't agree on this interpretation. I believe this is a reference to Genesis 6. Uh, If you remember that scene, angels, certain angels had human relationship or had sexual relationship with human beings. I know. What do you do with this? Um, I think Jude 6 is referring to the same notion. If you wanted to turn there, you could see it's angels who've left their proper domain and thus they're under judgment. This was a common Jewish interpretation of, of Genesis 6 in the Intertestament Jewish literature. It's found in the Qumran skull literatures. It's found, I have First Enoch is loaded a whole discourse on this. But they are angels that some angels who, who had left their proper domain and had sexual relationship with human beings, I think they're offspring of the Nephilim that you read of later, um, <clears throat> and ultimately those angels are judged. Those angels, according to, to Second Peter and also Jewish tradition, are sent to a kind of like a holding tank waiting final judgment. Do you remember the demoniac that Jesus met as he crossed the sea, Luke, uh, Mark 5, Luke? Yeah, the legion. And they, they said, don't cast us into outer darkness, but send us over to the swine. Where are they referring to? I think they're referring to where these angels are currently being held. They're saying, please don't send us over there. So let us go to the piggies instead. And that's... No, no, no. This is not to be equated with Catholic purgatory. No, this is a a special holding tank for these angels that will await the final judgment, I would argue. There is no purgatory I don't see in Scripture. Uh, Once as you die, uh, you you meet the maker. (laughs) And there's judgment or or blessing, but uh, we can go further in. Yes, Gary. There could be. The, Gary asked the question in Revelation, the pits open and some angels come forth to, to deliver the judgments that God had, is placing on humanity. could be. I know this is bizarre, and you're going, ah, I've never heard any of this like this before. But read Jude 6, read Second Peter, and go back to Genesis and explore. Uh, I wish we had more time to develop, but is there questions on this? <laughs> yes. I, I mean, it, it's, it's unique. I believe you have a group of angels who've fallen, demons, and some of them crossed over into a realm they should not, and that's having sexual relationship with human beings. As a result, God stopped that immediately. Um, and those offspring, I believe, are the Nephilim. Yes, John. Well, it's the sons of God and the sons of men that come together in Genesis 6. And my colleague thinks that that we're referring to earthly leaders having a relationship with earthly low women. Uh, that just does not fit. It just doesn't fit in the text. And that's not how Jews in the intertestament period understood it, as well as the early church. Yeah, so, uh, it, yeah, we could debate it. Either way, um, it fits well with the text to state that yeah, right now they're, they're in holding, and their judgment is, 
is as good as done. It's coming. And so to the false teachers, your judgment's looming as well. Well, let's, let's look at another one that's not as difficult, maybe, and that is Noah. He then moves to Noah, right? And he says he's, he's the herald. Uh, I hope it's better than what I can... No, never mind. Uh, herald of righteousness. <clears throat> this is intriguing as well. If you were to read Jewish literature from the intertestament period, between the old and the new, Noah was seen as a preacher of repentance. Time and time again. Job, by the way, uh, or um, Elijah. Elijah was known as a man of prayer. And that's James, when he refers to Elijah, refers to him as a man of prayer. Uh, this is how the Jews viewed these Old Testament characters. And Noah was one who preached repentance. We don't often think about that, do we? Um, with a hammer in one hand, I guess, and uh, a message in the other. Noah's preaching, as you see there in your notes, provided not only a means for salvation, but also a justification for God's judgment. You have a chance to repent. You don't, judgment. It's, it, and it happened just as it will happen to you, false teachers. So again, if he did this with angels, if he did this with Noah's generation, you're toast. You false teachers who think you're going to just skate by. Yeah, Paul. There's certainly that. The beauty of it is they cannot become the children of God. Isn't that awesome? God did not die, send his son to die for angels, which is, blows my mind. I, I think that's correct based on Isaiah, yeah, other text. I, I think you're right. So you're right. Uh, and Satan is an angel, a <laughs> uh, powerful one, but he's an angel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, we have the judgment of Noah's generation. The third issue that we see is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a no-brainer. Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of the, if you want to level a derogatory remark about someone, say, oh, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, that, that phrase, it, it's kind of thrown around like Nazi Germany today, right? You know, you mentioned that term, ooh, you're awful. Well, the same with Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it, it becomes an, a type of evil. <clears throat> and I mentioned in your notes there by Farnberg, he says, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is not merely a historical curiosity, but functions as a type of what transpires for those who refuse to obey God. <clears throat> and again, the parallels between them and the false teachers, it, it's, it's down to the lexical choices, the, down to the words that Peter will use, how he described the false teachers is the very same words he describes <clears throat> the individuals from this wretched city. Now, I don't know about you. I told Paul Druck before we started this morning, there is a, I, I, I scratch my head <clears throat> in this text because three times Lot is called righteous by Peter in this passage. Now, I don't know about you, <clears throat> But Lot is not an example of righteousness, in my opinion. 
forgive me, but I mean, he's willing to throw his daughters to those guys outside the door. Remember that? Um, he abandoned Abraham. He, he picked the best that he wanted. Then he got that situation, you know, and then, uh, you know, he, he's sitting at the gate. So he's a leader in one of the five cities of the plain. Go back and look at the text. He first pitches his tent outside. The next thing you know, he's sitting in the gate, which means he's an elected official in, in Scum City, right? Uh, he, he's right there. And then you have the situation later on where he has sexual relationship with his two daughters, which is, whoo, that's a whole bizarre thing too, right? <clears throat> so, I mean, how in the world can you call him righteous? I'm asking you. And there's some commentaries who will punt and say, well, compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, he was righteous. Well, that might be true, but that doesn't seem to wash. Um, Moo, we were talking, Douglas Moo in his commentary argues, well, it's because uh, righteous is more of a status. That is um, who you are in Christ kind of a thing versus necessarily the moral fiber. And to me, the two are, to divorce those two, very difficult. Uh, yeah, Mike? Mm-hmm. A couple more, yeah. Go ahead, Kyle, and then... Well, the text calls him righteous. It's already called Noah righteous. And then Peter, three times, I mean, not once, three times. I think he did that so we would, okay, maybe he is righteous. <laughs> if you'd only said it once, maybe we could skip that over. Uh, yeah, one more. He did not participate in their behavior. He demonstrated hospitality. And that is why the Jewish writings in the intertestament period, as well as First Clement, an early church father, will say Lot was righteous because God is gracious. He God. You know, I don't know about you, but the idea that the author of this book could be Peter, and, and Noah is no stellar as well. He had his flaws, and so did Lot, and God yet used them and protected them and provided for them. I, don't, I can't think of a more encouraging thing here as I read the text. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, we will get to that, and that is a good point. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 5. You know, Lot is noted because that uh, he did not practice their behavior. He showed hospitality. He did try to protect his uh, visitors at that night. How he went about it, we could all question. But I think he knew that they wouldn't take women anyways. So, but... Isn't that like us? I mean, I feel like David and Lot a lot. Yeah, 
Well, and I think... You know, if you only read 2 Samuel chapter 12, you wouldn't come away from that thinking that David was very righteous. No, or a friend of God. But the remnant of that is Psalm 55, and if you read that, yeah, hmm. a man change after God's own heart. So you see here, let me move forward. The text also tells us why he might be righteous. And did you see that in the text? Literally, he's tormented over what? Their, their behavior, right? He is grieved by sin. And one of the things I'm going to ask in the intersect is, when is the last time you've been grieved by our society and its sin? Um, we have already killed more than the Nazis, right? Through abortion. So, I mean, Stalin looks like a Sunday school teacher by the time we're done. Yeah. I know, but at the end of the day, he saw, in fact, the text tells us, look what it says here, by the lawless deeds, verse 8, he saw and heard. That phrase throughout scripture indicates moral perception. He sees, he perceives, he understands, this is not right. And that's verse 8. Well, he gives us one more, <clears throat> and that, oops, I have, that's right, I deleted that slide. The fourth thing that he mentions is that judgment of the future is imminent. It will come, and he's going to come back to that, as Dan mentioned in verse 3. I wrote under there, and God is intimately involved with this world. That's what Peter's trying to highlight. He created it, he sustains it, and he will judge it. And the eschatological truths contain a promise of deliverance for the righteous. That's the beauty. Yes, this text is heavy. Yes, it's dark. But in the midst of it, God preserved Lot. He preserved Noah. And to our audience, those who are holding fast to the truth in the midst of the false teachers and the accusations, God will sustain them as well. Notice in verse 10, it says, those who indulge their fleshly desires and despise authority. Schreiner and others argue that despising authority is ultimately referring to Christ's authority. How? How are they doing this? How are they despising Christ's authority? They aren't afraid to insult the Lord's glory. They're not afraid to insult the Lord's glory. Yep. What else? We saw earlier, right, in verse 2, how else are they doing this? We talked about this, the very message of Christ, and the message about Christ, that is the gospel. <clears throat> They're disputing it, diluting it. I wrote three things down. They corrupt the message about Christ, they minimize the work of Christ, and they eliminate the need for Christ. There's the three areas. They corrupt the message, they minimize the work, and they eliminate the need. No wonder they're false teachers. The litmus test it might be, we could argue one of them is greed, but really the litmus test is what does that individual do with Christ? How is their Christology? If it's weak, careful. We got a heretic in the midst. <laughs> 
right? What do you do with all this? Let me give you three things to hang on your beak today. <clears throat> Number one, one of the great dangers for followers of Jesus is the danger of compromise, isn't it? It's not all of a sudden, it's slow. <laughs> and the next thing you know, after a couple years, you're way over here. An individual who is living for the Lord will stand out in this dark world. Lot, Noah, and the list goes on. And I think that's what Peter is saying here to his audience as he's about to face martyrdom. You're going to stand out if you live for Christ. That's just how it is. And the world is not going to be happy. And you've all lived long enough to know, some of you more than others, uh, where, you're welcome. Where are you going to get attacked most? I often think it's from those who claim to be in the church. It's not outside. Uh, some of the greatest darts that's been leveled at my wife and I have not been <laughs> from those who do not claim the name of Christ. It's those who've claimed the name of Christ. So be warned, right? Yes, yes. Be very warned. Second, Second Thessalonians 2. I want you to look at this. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians 2. First Thessalonians stresses faith, hope, and love. When you get to Second Thessalonians, faith and love are highlighted, but they have no hope. That's why he's writing Second Thessalonians. And in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, but we ought to thank God, he says, for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning. He called you. Therefore, he says in verse 15, stand firm, hold fast, right, to the traditions we taught you by speech or by letter. There it is. Who lived in grace gave us eternal comfort and, watch this, and good hope. Encourage your hearts. Peter's writing to a group of believers <clears throat> that are on the onslaught of false teachers and orthodoxies in trouble. And it's spilling over not only in doctrine, but far worse into their conduct. Is take heed, take heed, uh, hold fast to the truth. And that's a good reminder to all of us. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but um, constantly do an inventory. How you doing on this? Second, as followers of Jesus, we need to be burdened about the state of the world. The sin that surrounds us should cause us to pray to God for a revival. I wrote him, when's the last time you've prayed for a revival? A.W. Tozer, at the bottom of your notes, there's a quote that's worth its weight in gold. Those Christian leaders who shook the world were one and all men of sorrows whose witness to mankind welled out of heavy hearts. Isn't that great? You want, Lord, give us a passion to see the world through your lens, to see what's happening around us. Well, that's too convicting. We'll move on. Number three, no matter the darkness of the hour, the Lord promises to deliver his people. And this is that glorious tone that's humming through the text here, right? <clears throat> History testifies to the fact. 
Turn to Psalm 62. I want you to see this psalm, and we're going to close with this. Psalm 62. I mean, think about it. These three principles, Noah and Lot, can illustrate for us. And again, as Mike Razor, as you comment, you're right. Neither men were stellar, but so was David or even our author of this epistle, Peter. They had their flaws, but they held fast. And Psalm 62 is a great text, verses 5 through 7. It says, Patiently wait for God alone, my soul, for He is the one who gives me confidence. He alone is my protector and deliverer. He is my refuge, and I will not be upheated. God delivers me and exalts me. God is my strong protector. And as Peter writes to the believers, he says, listen, God is going to judge. There is a coming. (laughs) And these false teachers, they'll get their upcomings just like the angels, the, the generation of Noah, those citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, they'll get it. But at the meantime, don't forget, God protects the righteous. Just ask Noah, just ask Lot, right? Good reminders, right? And we're living in a day where the church is under attack both externally and internally. Oh, doom and gloom. The Lord's coming back. And these can be the most exciting days to serve as a lighthouse in a world that's desperately needing answers. Um, Right? Paul. Yes, the Nicolaitans. Yep. We really don't know. Uh, scholars have debated exactly what they are espousing, but it's certainly a heretical group. Uh, and they're lamb-blasted in the seven letters to the churches, the Nicolaitans are. Um, <clears throat> it's, we, we just don't know. Some have argued it's an early Gnostic group, but anyway. Um, maybe they're the early form of the Mormons. I don't know. But that's the problem with Mormonism. That's the problem with Jehovah Witnesses. It's the problem with, with Islam, is what do they do with Christ? And that's what Peter's saying here to the false teachers. They've undermined the gospel because they've attacked Christ. It's about Him, right? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the gospel. And we thank You that You have called us and You have promised to sustain, to protect, and to deliver. And you have a great track record. You're at 100% because you are God. Who would have thought of a guy building a boat when there was never been rain? Or who would have thought a guy who's sat in the city gates of one of the most wicked cities in history is sustained even though you could have destroyed him with the rest of the city? Lord, help us to be found faithful. And Lord, for many of us in the room, we have our stories. We have our pitfalls like Lot and Noah and even Peter. But in your grace, Lord, we recognize that uh, you forgive and you sustain. Help us to be faithful. And may we see even today that the person we interact with at the grocery store, at the, at the gas station or at the restaurant, or may we see them through your eyes because judgment is coming. And uh, may we live accordingly.
Thank you, Father. Thank you for these men. Guide them today in Jesus' name. Amen.